All right, we are back for another edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I am David Campbell, your host, sports manager at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And joining me is the author of a new newsletter that is going to be coming out, Terry. We should talk about this right at the beginning. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. We have a new newsletter, Terry. People can go to Cleveland.com slash newsletters. And once a week, you'll get everything from Terry Pluto in your inbox once a week. Pretty exciting to have your own newsletter, right? Yeah, and basically, they just put all the stories that I've written together in one spot. So that way, if you've missed something, if you like wake up at 3 in the morning and said, I just can't wait to read some brown scribbles, you can find out if there is some. If you missed it, it was there. Or if you're in the mood to talk to yourself like I am sometimes, you can find that <laughs> in the newsletter. Or if you just want Terry's talk and that's in the newsletter, or if you want a dose of faith, you could find that. And um, one thing, usually I write enough to, you know, give you a variety of topics and it's free. Very free. And if you, again, cleveland.com slash newsletters. And, you know, I sign up for a lot of the newsletters we have and it's really nice. You don't have to go looking for stuff uh, once a week, all of Terry's columns will just pop right into your email and you can catch up on anything you might have missed so you know the danger of that is what is the example it comes out and then in my wonderful thing remember i wrote the column about kind of taking stephen a smith to task about how the cash shouldn't even show up for the game three minutes in square garden and all that and said no i didn't expect them to win because it's a tough Tough situation because, but it's the Knicks, not the Garden, and of course they played exactly like Stephen A. Smith predicted. <laughs> so when you go and read that in with the facts in front of you, it's like, oh boy. <laughs> well, so Stephen that'll be that'll been, be interesting too. Stephen A. has been wrong plenty of times too. I know he has. Fandom gets in the way, but he's been he's he, been on on this one. Yeah, he was he was right on that, and that's that's the big disappointing thing there. But what, right, let's what get what the cat is, here. But here what I meant is it's funny because you live on the internet, you know, in terms in the old days, unless they kind of saved your stories, it sort of disappeared. Now it's like they could dig up something you wrote for the last twenty some years or however long the internet's been around. Um, and so anyway, the good thing is you. You get a chance to take a look at him. And then you can say, boy, he flip-flopped from Thursday to Sunday on that. Well, you write what you see, right? You're like an umpire. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, let's get into it, Terry. The um, boy talking. There's a lot of Cavs fans who are talking to themselves and scribbling oh. uh, after watching the weekend. Uh, there's a lot to go through here, but the, you know, the Cavs are down 3-1. They're coming back home for game five on Wednesday night at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. You wrote yesterday about how Donovan Mitchell, and he admitted this after the game, let the team down, didn't didn't bring his A game. Um, a game? You, how, how about yeah. a C game? <laughs> so where are and, you, you know, I don't go there? off on people, but that was embarrassing because he got away. I know I'm cutting you off, but I just no, no, go ahead. get it off. The thing he may do best is drive into the lane and get off shots or even a pat. He is so strong, you know, his uh, lower body. It's really hard, as they say, to knock him off the ball. And he just was content to just kind of go from the outside, and he just didn't push it. Now, granted, the Knicks, as is, is J.B. Bickers have said, they kind of crowd the lane and make it difficult. But we saw Garland start getting in there and making plays, either for himself or for someone else. Mitchell's got lot, he's got little uh, – 
floaters. He's got power layups. He can get fouled. And don't tell me they were not calling fouls. R.J. Barrett went to the line 13 times. And it wasn't simply that, oh, New York's getting all the calls. It was that he just kept going in there. And some of the times he went in there, got knocked off the ball, and they didn't call it. But he just kept going in there. And that's what he needed to do, Uh, he being Donovan. When you're not going well, go to what you do best. Well, not to get all hockey on you here again, Terry, but there's a play in hockey called a pass off the pads, which is where you're coming down the ice and you're not yes. shooting the score, but you shoot the puck at, at the goalie's legs because he goes uh-huh. on and stops it. And then what happens? It's laying there and someone else can get it and shoot it in. And exactly. that's what the Knicks are doing. The Knicks, the Knicks are going to the basket. They're, they're either drawing Allen up into a double team, which opens mm-hmm. up Robinson and everybody else for an offensive rebound, or they're getting fouled or they're making the shot. But if, like you said, if you don't go into the lane, nothing good is going to happen most of the time. So I agree. They, they got to get in there. And, and I think Mitchell is, is number one on that list, right? I mean, Garland is a guy that physically it's not easy for him to go on the lane because he is so thin. Um, but he did it anyway. That was a big adjustment they made at halftime for him was get in there, you know, start. And then, of course, you know what happens when you there is no hockey analogy to this because there's just a, a few goals in a game. But when you finally get a couple balls to go through the rim or when you finally you're a good player and you get to the foul line and, you know, he's an 80 percent free throw shooter being Donovan, uh, you just feel better about yourself. And so then you, you suddenly you start making that jump shot. The other thing, analytics hate it and all this stuff. But when you're banging that three-point shot off the rim, try to get in there and take a 12-footer. You need to see the ball go through the rim. He took four shots in the fourth quarter. The one he made was one little short one, and that was it. Um, I was... I was just shocked by that. Now we can get into they were out-rebounded 47-33. to 33. I thought Jared Allen, I know he was being pulled out some of the double teams, but my goodness, he was on the floor for 37 minutes at four rebounds. It's embarrassing. Um, you know, it, it just it just was bad. And there were times when he got the ball five, six feet away from the basket, and he turned around and like threw it to a coro or somebody in the corner. Go up with it. Make them foul you. And I'm tired of these obsession with corner threes i just i mean if you have a guy who's great at it wonderful but when you get the ball five feet from the basket um go up with it because i mean Allen is a uh all right even in the playoffs right now Allen is shooting you ready for this you want to take a guess what he's shooting from the field 61 percent 67 percent oh i wasn't far off no but that was my point so he's shooting 67 percent and, you know, so, but he's only gone to the foul line six times in four games. Or taken six free throws, excuse me, not six times. So that's probably he's taken, gone to the foul line three times in four games. All right, well, let's get into this a little bit, Terry. I, you know, we both picked the Cavs to win this series. And the reason I did, I, I, mean, I know you had your reasons, but I thought the Cavs had more offensive firepower. And I thought the Cavs were tougher. Than they're showing to be so the, the so let's get into this, the two parts of this i guess the first is the rebounding mm-hmm. the calves are being dominated on the boards is it a lack of toughness or do you think that it's just a matter of what we're just talking about where the, the defense has been breaking down and guys are having to double and leaving leaving robinson and hartenstein and these other guys open for boards what are you seeing on the rebounding front and how do the calves fix it 
the the good thing the Knicks have going, which I didn't realize how powerful it is for them, is to have two total role players who are obsessed with rebounding, being Robinson and Hartenstein. By the way, Hartenstein blew through Cleveland among his stops of five different teams. Um, that was a couple of years ago. So they don't have that guy. The Cavs don't. You know, they have starters, but they don't have a guy who just is obsessed with rebounding. And that is costing him in this. The other thing that's going on here, uh, I believe, is you still look at it. I want the guards and small forwards to help out. The one game where they really did well in that area is when they, they hit the boards. I mean, right now, Darius Garland, I know he's small, but he's averaging 1.8 rebounds a game. You know, I mean, you know who was the leading rebounder Sunday? For the, to for his, the Cavs? Yeah, to his credit. Uh, Donovan Mitchell? Karis LeVert. Really? All right. Nine. LeVert played like a man in that game. Actually, since his terrible first game, he's been really good. Um, and I think he's making a strong case for himself being uh, – uh, then they need to sign him for next year, by the way, because, you know, who do you have coming off the bench or whatever? So, but I'm just kind of looking, you know, uh, Mitchell's averaging four and a half rebounds. I'll say this. He can go and get six rebounds and six or seven rebounds in a game like this. He can't. He's out there for 40, 40 some minutes. He can go do that. You know, your small forwards, you know, I'm looking at um, Okoro, 1.5 rebounds. I know he's far away sometimes with Brunson. But 1.5 rebounds, you know, I mean, it's just stuff like that. I, I don't see team rebounding. Uh, I mean, a guy that I'd like to see get some minutes if they're unhappy with things would be uh, would be Lamar Stevens because I think he will get in there and, and scrap and just uh, cause. So that's you, when, you're, when your big guys are having trouble, help them. Just everybody go to – the boards. For example, remember, we're talking offensive rebounds are getting, which meant defensive rebounds for the Cavs, which means everybody, when that shot goes up, everybody can go to the defensive board. It's allowed. It's not like, you know, uh, when you were a kid and you, you had to hit the ball to left field or something, somebody couldn't go stand in a certain area. Everybody could go to the boards. Well, yeah, it, it, everybody does have to rebound, Terry. And just some quick numbers in 75 minutes in game four, Jared Allen and Evan Mobley combined for 26 points and 11 rebounds. In 48 minutes, Mitchell Robinson, Hartenstein combined for 13 points, 19 rebounds, eight offensive and four yeah. blocks. Yeah. So, but I got to be fair, like Jared Allen and Mobley are being pulled all over the floor. Mm-hmm. Because of defensive breakdowns here and there, especially with Brunson out in the paint, like right below the free throw line, and that's why they're not being able to just devote their time to getting a body on somebody. Yeah, so you're right. What, it's got to be everybody, yeah, but it's like everybody's like, why aren't the big guys rebounding more? Well, well Allen's having to step up to help. Then he's got to go find Robinson, get a body on him. Robinson's standing right under the basket. It's just there's too much going on in that mm-hmm. paint area. It's got to start from the outside in. I think Allen can help on the offensive board, though. Absolutely, that, that's a that's an area. Um, what we're also seeing is what Dallas saw last year with Brunson. He is one of those secret superstars. Remember, it wasn't. You see now how they went with Luca and Kyrie Irving, and they missed the playoffs with that group. But Luca and Brunson 
went to the Western Conference Finals a year ago. And this guy, you know, he's a was a big time player at Villanova. A lot of those Villanova guys, you know, Josh Hart played at Villanova, um, Bridger, um, uh, I think, yeah, from from Phoenix. You know, the, a lot of those guys from Villanova that were on those championship teams, they've become really good pros. So anyway, um, you're seeing that, and I don't know why, by the way, JB now opened the game with with. Uh, uh, unless I was mistaken, that kept happening on switches. I don't know. Garland was on Brunson a lot early in that game. All right, so let's talk about this for a second, Terry. So um, Chris Fedor, our colleague who covers the Cavaliers, actually tracked down JB after interviews last night and, and put a story up today on Cleveland.com and, and asked him, why did you put Darius Garland on Brunson to start the game? Like, that seems like a bad matchup. And his and I'm, I want to get, ah, I want to get your take on this reasoning, but his, his deal was – well, they're going to be they're going to be screening for him, and we're probably going to end up with Garland on him anyway. We might as well just start there because if they do pick, then we'll be in this. We we won't have to go through all that. It'll be a lot easier. And his second thing was that Darius Garland wanted to take him on and see what he could do. He said that's a matchup I want. Second, uh, second, second one is irrelevant. It is. It is. Uh, but, you know, in Chris's story, he mentions that according to NBA matchup data, Brunson has scored just 15 points and gone six from 20 against Karis Levert. Yes. And against Garland, Brunson has scored 20 points on eight of 14 from the field and two of four on three pointer. The only worst Cleveland defender against Brunson has been Jetty Osmond. Yeah, Osmond, that's hopeless. Right, right. That, so that, that, that well, should never happen. <laughs> So that was that a mistake, Terry, just to, yes. to do that? And and I guess what we saw happen was pretty much uh, Thibodeau yesterday just started saying, "Don't screen, just let him guard him." Like, yeah, exactly. Don't even, don't even make don't even make them make the switch because we like this. So yes, exactly, and that would be the thing too. I remember in the first game, a couple times Garland ended up on him, and I was sitting with uh, uh, Brian Dillick and Tom Withers, and I leaned over to him and I said. This is like when once in a while when I was at Benedictine and I was on the JV team and I'd get to like scrimmage with the varsity kids and one of the better players would just take me down. His eyes would, eyes would light up and, you know, no chance. And that's not to knock Garland. This is not Garland's game. You know, Garland is really good on the offensive end. And actually he does a nice job sometimes creating deflections. But put him on Jalen Brunson, no chance, no chance. And so – why do that? No, you go with your best guy. You tell Levert and you tell Okoro, you're to fight through screens. Besides, most of the time, they're going to screen with the big guy. So you'll end up with with Mobley or Allen on him or something like that. You know, especially they're going to screen with Julius Randle. So it was a very strange, just, and I like JB, by the way. I'm, I'm going to end up having to fight off all the critics on JB at the end of the series. I know that. But that was really dumb. That was just a dumb move on his part. Um, and because you have really two good defenders in Okoro, and I would argue Stevens, you could throw in there two on him. You could, you got three guys you could throw on him. Because now, you know, R.J. Barrett went off, and, and that was uh, that was the X factor for them. But So we'll see. All right, so we talked about the rebounding. In terms of the shooting woes, Terry, I, I think we've kind of touched on that. You want to see them take the ball to the rack yeah. harder and more frequently, and good things will happen from that. So that's how yeah. you see them. Yeah, just, right. just try something. 
try something. Then when you start to score a little bit, the other shots will go in. I'm just, you know, I'm kind of looking here at some pretty sad looking numbers and, you know, they're shooting 30% on threes in this series. Um, you know, Garland's at 44%. Levert's at 31 Um you know, my my thing always is just because you're open for a three doesn't mean you have to take it. So we shall see, you know, what, what goes on. I was for, pleased to see Okoro, you know, go into the rim some because he's strong in that. So, you know, I, there's a lot of things happening here. But uh, where Donovan Mitchell should have been the great player in the series, the great player in the series is Brunson. And, by the way – there's two things going on that with Evan Mobley. One is people don't give him credit. He's done a really nice job on Randall. Now, granted, Randall's playing with a sprained ankle, but Randall, Randall, in fact, it got so bad they wouldn't put Randall on the floor in the fourth quarter. Um, the other thing is Mobley's 21. It's his second season. He hasn't been through this, and he's getting knocked around some. But he's also who is the leading rebounder and for the Cavs in the playoffs? Is it him? 10.2 per game. All right. Okay. Well, and, and talk about an education. I mean, he, after the game yesterday, he was talking about how we got to get tougher. We have to show, him, yeah. show more grit. So there's a lot of education happening here. It's just, if you're a Cavs fan, you have to hope that they can figure this out by Wednesday night. Um, so do you think we will see Lamar Stevens in, in game five, Terry? He hasn't played since the uh, regular season finale. If well, I, yeah, he, hasn't, he hasn't been in the playoffs at all. So no. he, but he did play he in that last, junk, last game junk. against Charlotte. Yeah, he, he did game. play. He played some junk time in that. Uh, I think that blowout. Uh, but anyway, I like you know it's funny because sometimes I wonder maybe I'm a little too obsessed with Lamar Stevens. Uh, yeah, he's played four minutes in that blowout. Um, but uh, Van Gundy mentioned in that game. He said, you know, I like this guy. I think he could be a role player. Now, granted, Van Gundy likes those kind of guys, but those kind of guys is what the series is about. You have a couple stars and a bunch of guys like Lamar Stevens and Robinson and Hartenstein and R.J. Barrett and these other guys saying, well, who's going to be, you know, Levert, who's going to rule? So I I just would I would try to kind of find your toughest hombres for this next upcoming game, and they play. You know, you got a couple stars, and you got your surround them with the hombres. Well, and like they say, you don't need to, need to win three games. You just need to win one. To sure get you back do. In it. So, um, yeah, I mean, you don't look, you're down three to one. The percentages of winning this series are like, you know, less than being hit by lightning. I mean, it's, it's really a long shot, but so what play it. Yep. Well, this, I, I, we want to give a little perspective here in a minute, Terry, but while I'm thinking of it, one thing, if they do take this thing back to New York, <laughs> I would like to see them not put subs in the game while the Cavs are on offense. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Have you noticed that there's been one time in game three and one time in game four where the Cavs are on offense in front of their own bench? And I think it was Mitchell one time and maybe, I can't remember who the second one, maybe Garland. They saw somebody from the bench walk in to go check in and they threw the ball to them. <laughs> like, <laughs> Just wait. Like you have wait. enough trouble already. Like don't confuse the guys who are driving down the lane looking to kick out to Evan Mobley walking to the scorer's table. Yeah, I don't like, – Of course, have at them this put point, a different color shirt on or something. That that rim probably looked like a thimble to uh, uh, Mitchell, and he probably felt like he was growing up, going up against 12 guys. So, um, 
We yeah, will he see. Saw, he saw a movement and he passed to it. So uh, <laughs> there's got to yep. be, it's got to be a solution there. But, uh, but Terry, we want real quick, just, we wanted to give a little perspective here. I, you've seen a few emails. I have two, you know, the coaches need to be fired. Um, you know, the sky is falling. This thing needs to be t- torn apart. Uh, this is a letter that you got from a gentleman named Dr. Zavano. I hope I got your last name right, Dr. And he says, hey, Terry, there are numerous scathing reviews about the Cavs, their makeup, horrible coaching, player performances, et cetera, et cetera. Little, if any, covered accurately prior to the playoffs. The simple fact is, is assembled. This team is going nowhere. It is painfully obvious. The question is, once again, how it is we talk about success and what a good team, coach, front office, and then get embarrassed on a national stage. There needs to be a lot of soul-searching and blunt assessment to the facts. We are only going to get better holding failure accountable, including the coach, front office, and players. So thanks for sending that letter in. And that, that we, we've seen a few like that over the last few days, Terry. Uh, what do you think when you see something like this where people are uh, demanding change right away for a team chill that won 51 out. games? I think chill out. Start with that. First of all, I'm tired of this thing, accountability. What does that mean? You want them fired? I'm very serious. What does it mean? It's a thing people throw around. But what what does it mean? Okay. That's all it can mean. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, now, if you consider a team with the average starters about 24 years old and the whole lineup is 26 or younger unless LeVert plays, that won 51 games and made it to the playoffs, going nowhere, your memory is just flawed. We saw a bunch of teams going nowhere. How about the John Beeline era? Wasn't that fun? Byron Scott and poor Mike Brown and in, in, in route number two until LeBron came back. They were going nowhere for years. And the last two years, they have gone somewhere. They were on the verge of the playoffs last year with 44 wins. They went up to 51 wins this year and made the playoffs. Now, of course, they need to get more players off. The- See, people go from you need to you know fix the roster. JB needs to have some. I will agree with this about some soul searching and how you want to coach in the playoffs and that. That's all true. But to pretend that what they've done I would say 80% of the teams in the NBA would love to be in the position that the Cavs are in. No doubt. They're not losing it. Who are they going to lose to free agency other than possibly Levert that you would want? You know, you could argue the Dean Wade thing flopped badly. I looked at Kevin Love. And Love for the the three games in the uh, Milwaukee series, the numbers are pretty good. He's averaging 9.3 points. Six rebounds. You know, you'd love to have that shooting 42%. But it's kind of like he's up and down. He His first game, he had 18 points. That was his big thing. The last two games, he's played 32 minutes. He shot two for eight in those 32 minutes for 10 points and set 10 rebounds. So, you know, it, it's up and down. But, you know, in retrospect, would you rather have Kevin be thrown in this game than somebody else? I'll say this. Kevin will go get a defensive rebound. Now, they would try to put him in the pick and roll all the time to hurt him defensively. But, um, uh, you know, but I think it's minor. It's a minor point. I really do. Your your stuff that you hit on and the scrambling and, and my my theme of team rebounding is, is more important, whether they do or don't have Kevin Love. 
All right, Terry. Do do you think they win Game Five on Wednesday night? Yeah, just because I don't want to read the emails if they lose. <laughs> well, I I'm not going to make a prediction for Game Five because I already made my prediction for the series. But if the Cavs go down Wednesday, they're going to go down fighting. I really believe that. I I don't think we've seen the level of intensity or scrappiness or winning fifty fifty balls that we're going to see on Wednesday night. Yeah, I think I think they get that now, and I think they're going to play like it. On and you put you put different guys in there to make yeah. sure that you get that. You yeah. look for your toughest guys, and you surround Garland and Mitchell and your two big guys when you go to the bench. And I count Levert as one of the tough guys, and I'm looking for somebody else. I think Okoro can be, and I and I and I think Stevens, and that's what you do. You do, and you just try to get your your starters just to be. I mean, if Donovan Mitchell wants to go get six to eight rebounds in this game, he can go get it. Look at his jumping. Look at his size. Get on the boards. Garland could do more than get one and a half rebounds a game. He's out there for nearly 40 minutes. So I would just really challenge them. Yeah, I think they're going to bring it on Wednesday. And, you know, Terry, the the Cavs are missing an awful lot of wide-open shots. I don't have the number in front of me. We have a story up at cleveland.com slash Cavs. That it's not that they're not getting the looks; they're getting wide open looks, and they're just not making them. Mm-hmm. So if those shots start start falling, then they'll be back in New York. Um, and if they don't, then you're right; they better rebound because <laughs> yeah. there's no other alternative. So, all right. Well, Game Five is at seven o'clock on Wednesday down at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. Should be very interesting. And uh, next week on the pod, Terry, we'll either be talking about uh, how the Cavs fought back, or we'll be looking toward next season. So, want to take a break? Yes. Quick break. All right, let's do that. We'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Uh, Terry, we were kind of trading emails and texts today trying to get ready, and you told me today that when we talk Guardians, you have what you called a stunning stat on Oscar Gonzalez. So I'm really eager to hear what this is. So why don't you take it away? Well, I was kind of wondering why lately he's not been playing against right-handed pitching. All right, David. He's had 27 at-bats against right-handers, and he has how many hits? Well, I have to admit, Terry, I was doing a little research on him, and I actually pulled his chart today, and I am I have it here. I think he has one hit, right? Yeah, one for 27. One for 27. A single. And, yeah, and meanwhile, he's nine for 28, 321 against lefties. So, but the interesting thing, so go back and we look at, well, what was he a year ago? 308 against righties, 266 against lefties. So what's going on? One of two things. Either they are just breaking him, breaking balls away to death, where he used to hit even those balls out of the strike zone to right field hard for hits, or he's just in a total funk against righties. I mean, it's just – but in the minors, he was never known as the guy that, you know, was really – hampered by lefties. For example, Josh Naylor, most of his career, people know he struggles against left-handed pitching. This is not a big surprise. Uh, In fact, he's two for 19 against lefties this year. But Oscar has been not. So I I don't know what to make of it other than Will Brennan is very grateful because he gets to play against right-handed pitching. Yeah, yeah. And just to break it down, Terry, even against lefties, he's got seven strikeouts and no walks. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and against righties, five strikeouts and two walks. So yeah. 
Um, you know, we actually got a, um, a hey, Terry, about this that I can bring up. It's from Darren from Sturgis, Michigan. And he has a theory about Oscar that I wanted to run past you. He says, hey, guys, I have an Oscar Gonzalez theory. That walk-off against the Yankees in game three of the ALDS last year was so electric. Oscar probably relived that one a thousand times in his head over the offseason, as he should. It was a good pitch down and off the plate, though, and Oscar lunged a bit to poke it into center field. Here's my point. I think that success is in the back of his mind, and it's causing him to reach outside the zone, resulting in more weak contact that worked wonderfully in desperation time, but can't be his bread and butter for a season. Oscar's such a fun player to cheer for for all ages, so let's hope he figures it out. That's a Darren from Sturgis, Michigan again. Thanks for that. Darren, what do you think of that theory, Terry, where he well, has he's, success? And- he's been swinging at balls out of the strike zone his whole career, which is why the analytics types don't like him. Remember how the Guardians were almost reluctant to bring him up? And uh, their feeling was that he would become exposed and that kind of stuff. And I remember they were talking to me about uh, Gio Urshela years ago when Cleveland had him. You know, he's gone on to be a good player with the uh, Yankees, and then I think he's with the Twins now. But for the longest time, he could not hit. He was really good defensively at third. Um, And I remember Mark Shapiro telling me, he says, the one of the problems with Urshela is he's, it's not just that he swings at the balls outside the strike zone. He goes, he hits a lot of them, but he doesn't, he doesn't hit them very hard. And he finally learned a little more plate discipline and, you know, became a good hitter. It took a long time. He bounced from not only Cleveland to uh, uh, the Yankees, which is where he came out. He had a medium stop where, where uh, Shapiro was then running the Toronto Blue Jays. He took him over there. It didn't work over there either. Um, so it just may take longer with Oscar. Maybe it needs a, a, a trip to the minors, but he's not going to change appreciably how he hits. What he had going for him last year is uh, now they can measure, me, um, measure all that uh, exit velocity off the bat. And that, I mean, he hit the ball hard and he hasn't been hitting it hard this year. So we'll see. But, I mean, this one for 27, because a lot of times he would reach out and, and hit that pitch to the opposite field, like um, uh, it was a Darren, I believe, mentioned. So um, we'll see. I, I really like it. But at least this, you look at that, so he's 9 for 28 against lefties. So you think, all right, well, let's keep playing him against lefties, see if he gets some more confidence going. Because right now in the Guardians, not a whole lot of folks are hitting. Um and so, you know, when you look at you look at that as a team, do you know what their team batting average is, David? Two forty eight. Oh, they wish. Too high. Two three three. <laughs> now, I've been, granted, reading, all, I've been reading all season, Terry, about how batting averages are up and everything because of the new, the pitch clock and the uh, the shift going away and everything. So I guess high. <laughs> I gotta kind of take a look at that and see really how high it is you know your big thing is you got 22 games you got 12 homers now the thing that is also last year remember oscar was mr double because he would hit the ball in the gap in 55 at bats oscar has how many doubles oh i don't know i'm gonna say one one is the answer that's been the opera that's been the answer to both the oscar questions (laughs) um so you have that. But then again, we all knew who would lead, be second on the team in doubles. Of course, we all knew that would be Mike Zanino. Of course. Um, Everybody. And, it was you know, the biggest favorite. The man who's got the most is Jose. 
because Jose hates singles, so he just runs to second base. He, you know, I mean, he's fine with it, but he's always thinking singles. And by the way, Rosario is, you know, it, it kind of turns, you know, as, as Mabe approaches, Rosario starts to hit. And so he's starting to hit. But I mean, Mayor's, Mayor's hitting 185, uh, Oscar 182. You know, this is a concern because he's gotten some at bats. Gabriel Arias is six for 36, 167. Well, and you mentioned Will Brennan, Terry. Man, can you think if he if he hadn't come on the scene and, and be hitting the way he is? I mean, we, Naylor's he, Naylor's struggling. I think he's batting about a buck oh five against lefties. Yeah, he and you got is. Oscar struggling against righties. It's it really hamstrings Terry mm-hmm. Francona trying to make a lineup every day when you can't put somebody out there every day, depending on the starter. Yeah, Brennan's hitting two fifty, but I think uh, now when they look at they call it the underlying stuff. He's hit the ball pretty hard and. Uh, um, I I think for I mean for example he's got four doubles he's not going to hit a lot of homers he's um you know he he could draw some more walks too but Brennan Brennan's going to be a good player but uh, you know Arias I was a little surprised they they kept him and they sent down for, uh, uh, Freeman but uh, I think they want to you know continue to to see what he'll do it's uh it's an interesting kind of uh, situation uh, and. It, where you're looking at, I mean, Miles Straw's hanging in there hitting 260. So uh, that's that's been a good thing. And uh, we'll see how they hit. A couple other things I want to mention about the Guardians. Yeah. Um, are we seeing now the next wave of starting pitchers? Because Ward knows they need it. Uh, Logan T. Allen uh, is not, you know came up with a really nice start. And... This is something I simply forgot to write when I interviewed Rob Serfurlio, and I got to – he's a, the farm director. I've got to bring this up maybe for the weekend because I asked him last year. I said, what happened with Logan Allen? He was so good in A, he went to AAA and really got knocked around. And I guess I should have known this, but I didn't. They use a different baseball in AAA in the majors than they do in A. No way. And he went into a discussion of the seams, which is, you know, Rob's a Rob pitched at Yale, played one year of pro ball, so he kind of walks the stance between being a baseball guy and an analytics guy. He's got both going there. So I heard a lot about seams and the different baseballs. In fact, he said we do use the different we use have in in the uh, minor league camp in Goodyear, they use the major league baseballs all the time, but they use different ones. And he said some guys, and Logan was one of them, had trouble with his breaking ball, you know, adjusting to it. Now, Tanner Bibby, doesn't matter, you know, a ball's a ball to him, and he just, just did it. But he, he said, we think, now this is a spring training, mind you, okay? He said, I think he'll be good. I'm not worried about him. And it was a ball thing. Maybe it is. Who knew? Who knew? So I mean, everything they do in the minor leagues is intended to help guys move up the system and get to the majors. It's so weird that they use different balls. Like, you'd think it would be the same. I'm all like, the way what, through. they don't have enough money? These are cheaper balls? Like when you played Little I League? Know. I mean, what is this? I don't know. That's crazy. But anyway, so that's what he said. Um, so Allen's coming along. Battenfield's looked good in his two starts. Battenfield, by the way, is a guy they traded Jordan Luplo for. So we'll see. 
Um, you know, now this is not the same Logan Allen that made the team a couple of years ago from the Padres. This is the guy they put in the second round, I believe, it was out of Florida Atlantic. And Allen was such a good. This Allen was such a good athlete. He sometimes DH'd when he didn't pitch. So uh, in college. So I'm interested. And of course, right below you got Gavin Williams, you got Tanner Bibby, and, and then finally, yeah, I hate to you know there, but it's Spino's. What they're going to have them see another doctor or something. Yeah, on yeah. May 1st. So yeah. uh, it's not looking promising but for if you look at, this season for him. You know, so you go Allen, Bettenfield, and then Bibby and Williams. You might have another wave of like four starting pitchers coming like a few years ago when you had uh, Bieber and Plesak and um, they had Plutko and they had uh, Savali. You know, not all of them work out, but they come along. And by the way, guys pitched very well this year. I don't think they'll start him, but he's done it in the past. Where he could go three innings as Eli Morgan. Yeah, I, I think, think he's he had the lowest ERA, ERA in the team last time yeah, I, I looked. It, yeah, I think he's like one one run in 10 innings. So. Which was surprising because he doesn't have overpowering stuff, but his location is He's thrown a little harder, and that changeup is nasty, especially the left-handed hitter. So, um, so we'll see. You know, Hunter. And by the way, Hunter Gaddis could end up in the, in, in the uh, bullpen. I see they used him there the other day. And they were telling me that um, kind of like, of course, this guy got hurt. He was my guy. It was Cody Morris. Kind of like Cody Morris was last year. This big, big guy throws pretty hard. He's got a couple secondary pitches. Um, if he has trouble starting, well, let's just get him in the bullpen for an inning or two. By the way, Karen Check's driving me crazy. I don't think you're alone in that regard, Terry. This is This is not good. You know, and I don't want to hear about with him. It's always something. Remember, it was the sticky substance or whatever that was. Now it's the pitch clock or, you know, throw the ball. <laughs> Grab the right ball, the major league ball. And yeah. Throw, right. Yeah. Major league ball. You've been, you've had the regular baseball for a while. So I'm just, that's right. You know, I'm kind of looking here to see what our guy has done. 12 innings, 10 hits, 17 strikeouts. But this is the stunner. With the goodest stuff as he has, 12 innings, he leads the team in allowing home runs. Four. Kaboom. Okay. All right, so the Guardians, Guardians, we're taping this on Monday afternoon. Guardians are home tonight for a three-game series against Colorado, and then they have an off day Thursday, and then they have three in Boston at Fenway Park. You've been to Fenway Park, Terry, I know, right? Yes, many times. And then they're heading to New York after that to play the Yankees. So the worst locker rooms you could possibly imagine. It's like being in a clock closet. Oh yeah, no and room. And then you come down out of this dark little thing, and you go there, and you come out the tunnel, the runway, and you can't help it. You stare at the wall. There it is. The green monster is just there, and you do feel like it's a park where you know Ted Williams and Babe Ruth and all these guys. It feels like they played there now unfortunately they keep adding more and more stands to make it get higher and bigger to sell those tickets but there is a real romantic thing about it a place that i also liked this long gone was old tiger stadium oh yeah i did like that maybe because i was a kid and once that was my baseball road trip sometimes my dad would take me up there and you know watch norm cash and k-line and a bunch of those guys from the 60s a uh, late 60s play there jim northrop and um, so that was, I always thought that was kind of a cool park. The same thing. Yeah. But both of those then, are really intimate, really. Yeah, intimate. yeah. Yeah. All right, Terry, we're going to move along here. We're uh, running short on time a little bit. Let's get into the Browns. I, it's draft week. 
And Ashley Bastic, our colleague, has a story up today about how the every every Browns fan knows is that draft day is Super Bowl day usually in Cleveland, but not this year because the Browns don't have a first round pick or a second round pick. And you decided to do a little checking. You wanted to talk about Andrew Barry's success picking third rounders in the lower and how those picks have turned out. Why don't we get into that for a minute? Okay, so I asked uh, uh, Barry at the press conference because I sort of knew the answer. I said, what percentage of guys like third round, fourth round, fifth round, because I heard it's all kind of the same, become like viable in, in NFL starters? It could be like 30 starts or 40, pick a number. Um, he declined to answer. He just said that it's a small percentage in that. Um, but uh, so I went and because I knew, I believe it was Joe Banner told me back when he was running the Browns in 13, that the answer was about 20%. So, but I figured there's probably more new data out there. So I, I texted another top GM and said, well, what is this? And gave him the question. He said, I said, I heard it was 20%. He goes, that's really good. He goes, but our data shows 15%. And about 30 or 35% become what he called viable role players or, you know, guys you want on your team. So you're kind of looking at one out of three, maybe 40% total of these guys drafted third round and later do anything. And about 15% are starters. So I got between the third and sixth round, I got 16 players Barry's picked. And since they are, they, they, Browns, by the way, three picks in the third round, um, excuse me, two picks in the third round, two picks in the fourth round, two picks in the fifth round, a sixth and a seventh. So, David, out of those 16 guys, how many would you think would be starters? Would you consider starters? I mean, you could make a case. Well, Donovan Peoples-Jones, yes. Yes. Nick Harris, yes. He was start, he, the starting center before. You got to stay healthy left. for more than five minutes. No. Okay. I'm not and knocking, then, but you can't stay healthy for more than five minutes, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, Harrison Bryant. Maybe. All right. I'll give you, there's two maybe. There's two for sure. Emerson. See, I'm listing guys that have started, and you're listing guys that should that should start. Yeah, <laughs> so right. I, I'm being a little too They're, they're decent starters, and then, we're, then we'll have two maybes. Yeah, Elliot, Jordan Elliott and Jacob Phillips are the two two maybes after that, right? Yeah, but he gets hurt all the time too. Right. Okay, so uh, what's your list? I was I was looking at guys who have started. Right. But you're looking uh, at guys that that sh- should should start. You wouldn't yeah, be Yeah, you, you know, yeah. you put out there and you go, go what is this We're guy good. in the line? We're good with this guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, Emerson you feel really good about. And I feel very good about DPJ, and I've been in that camp for a long time. You know, because it's like – for all the discussions on Odell and all these other things, you know, this guy just keeps getting better. He's got size. Then you have two maybes, Elliot and Harrison Bryant. So I got four out of 16, which would be 25%. Probably two out of 16 is like, there's your 15%. Right. And then you get into some guys. Now, who might out of this group, and I'll – Okay, I'll read read that. And when you stop me, if somebody you think could become a starter. So this is from the Anthony Schwartz class, as it's known. All so, right, 2021. Here we go. Yeah, Schwartz, Hudson, Togia, uh, Tony Fields, or Demetric Felton. Okay, so we move right along. There's no maybes even there. All right. To me. I'm not even sure how many role players are there. Hudson, maybe. Maybe uh, they tell me Fields is good on special teams. Okay. All right. Then we go Elliott, Phillips, Bryant, Harris, DPJ. 
Anybody out there you think could emerge? Uh, well, see, we already have DPJ starting for sure, and we have Elliott as a maybe. I, I mean, I think from what I've seen of Nick Harris that he could be a legit starter. Yeah. I mean, we saw him play against Green Bay late in the 2021 season. Yeah, that's what started and all he, that, yeah. Yeah, and he, he acquitted himself very well, I thought. And he actually had a couple of games at guard that year, too, where he wasn't bad. Um, but we'll see. Uh, did he have an ACL? I forgot what he had. It was yeah, a major injury. Yeah, yeah. Yep. You know, Early in the preseason. Phillips uh, is always something with him. You know, it just is. Okay, last year. This is where it could be a little interesting. Um, you got Emerson, who's, who's, who's the no-brainer. Alex Wright. Bell. Oh, Perry and Winfrey. Eh, a little worried about that one. Uh, Cade York and Jerome Ford. So you're asking, I think Alex Wright might be the next one there. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, you're looking at Alex Wright and David Bell as like guys who are your third or fourth options at a position. So mm-hmm. I don't think either one. Yeah. Right. But maybe you could put them in the game. Yeah. As a rotational guy. Yeah, right, which would fit in that. I like. I still like Bell. I think that uh, – remember he had the foot injury, just kind of got off on the wrong start. Uh, maybe it's because I like bigger possession receivers. I might just have a bias in that area, which is why I like DPJ. I don't know about Wright. I, I haven't seen enough. Pen, you know, Winfrey, we'll see how that plays out. And then there is – and I did like this guy from the moment they drafted him, Jerome Ford, and they like it too. By the way, I know um, Barry did not close the door on bringing back Kareem. I think it's going to take a bazooka to blow that door open. That's all I'll just tell you that. I've heard there's nothing going on. They would look at it. They just feel that he needs to go, Kareem needs to go somewhere else, and they need to have Ford and then maybe bring in somebody or draft somebody else. Because uh, they do need a little more depth now. If they wanted to bring back Dearness Johnson, I would have been fine with that. Well, and there's money in knowledge here too, that. Terry. I mean, they they like Jerome Ford, and are you going to pay Kareem Hunt five or seven million or whatever it's going to be? Or Kareem's going to be lucky Hunt? to get. He's going to be lucky to get like two million and a make good or something. I mean, I'm serious. Oh, for sure. But even even so, it's more than what Jerome Ford is going to make on the right. second year of a rookie contract as a fifth mm-hmm. round pick. And if you really think so, you want to find out. And that's why, see, you could have signed Dearness for a million dollars. I think it wasn't even all guaranteed. Um, that's why, and he's 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 been a good soldier. So you would have had, um, I would have been fine with that. You would have had Ford, you would have had Dearness, and of course you have Nick Chubb. So um, anyway, kind of looking at that. And if you go around, you always, well, Tom Brady was a sixth round pick. And, you know, okay, fine. Brian Sipe was a 13th round pick. They don't have it anymore. But for the most part, the numbers are the numbers. Um, and really, you the GMs and all that, they make their money on the first and second round. That's where they really make their money. Absolutely. All right, Terry, so speaking of the draft, you you got I, – I was wondering where this came from. Andrew Berry got on a little bit of a, a monologue last week about uh, geese and horses and how geese can do certain things, but we want horses because horses can run. And he basically what he was talking about was we want guys who complement each other and can do things we need them to do. Uh, but your question was the one who got him off on that. And he also started talking about uh, preparing two quarterbacks. So yeah, well, tell us what happened at the Andrew Berry 
Okay. Well, That's from that Friday, that that was he. He just kept going on about my percentage thing, and then he wandered into geese and horses, um, and you know, <laughs> geese can waddle, geese can swim, geese can fly, but they don't do any of it very well. You know, horses can run fast. Of course, when my dad used to go to Northfield Park, he would prove that he had a real knack of betting on the horse that didn't run particularly fast. <laughs> so, um, not all horses are created equal. But I will say this, just about all geese are annoying and very messy. So you can kind of leave them out. It was it was it was really kind of unburial like. You know, this sounded like old football talk as opposed yeah. to the analytics guy. He's another uh, he's a Harvard guy. And so I, I kind of appreciate that. But I think what he was actually more saying, because he talked about people's Jones, why he wasn't fast, had good hands, was extremely smart and had good size. So you're looking at does he have an NFL skill? I think that's what it is, and that's above average. So that's what you're looking at, Eman, and the horses versus geese, and the and then fitting the guys who have different skills together so you can do everything you want mm-hmm. in an offense. Right, right. So that's that's where he went with that. So what about the two quarterbacks, Terry? Well, this I wrote about this on Sunday, where um, it was kind of a thing that uh, Stefanski mentioned, and that that well. You know, uh, Deshaun suffered because we really were getting two quarterbacks ready and we had to get Jacoby ready and their styles were different, et cetera, et cetera. I'm listening to that going, it's your job to have two quarterbacks ready. And you can go back to when Stefanski was quarterback coach in um, Minnesota. I think it was in 18. Their starting quarterback was supposed to be Teddy Bridgewater that year. He blew his knee in like one of those preseason, not a game, just those workouts. Then they went to Sam Bradford, who lasted two games and got hurt. And then he ended up playing the year with Case Keenum. And they went to the playoffs with Case Keenum, which, by the way, really increased Stefanski's stock um, as becoming a future head coach. So I may add to the. 49ers went with um, was it with no, Purdy. last season? Yeah, well, yeah, it was Purdy. Trey Lance to start, right? Then Jimmy Garoppolo Jimmy he got G. hurt. Then Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt, and then they went to Brock Purdy as their Purdy. Yeah, well, I was starting from the last to first. I'm sorry, I don't think all. Of, no, no, it's fine. Those are two different styles because uh, Lance is very athletic. Jimmy G's kind of a pocket guy, and you know, so no, I don't want to hear this. Now you could say things didn't work out, but it was not a lack of preparation. He had two pre- two weeks of practice before he played Deshaun. You could argue the old rust theory. It was 700 games in between, stuff like that. But um, I don't want to hear about preparation. That's your job. Well, I mean, what's the reason they couldn't have had a parallel thing going where they've got two I don't different know. like we see this all the time. Like you said, when a backup quarterback or a yeah. different quarterback gets put in, you have a package of plays for them, and they pra- they mm-hmm. practice them. So, like, yeah, let's go. Yeah, so I, I grab the I baseball mean, and throw it, right? Yeah, I mean, really, they have enough coaches and everything else. So just, I just think they're trying to take as much pressure off Deshaun as possible heading into this year to, to sort of diminish how he played. And look, if Deshaun comes out and really looks terrific the first three or four games, and we just say, okay, it's whatever. He didn't play for two years, all that stuff. If he struggles, then you know there's there's all kinds of stuff there, but I just thought that was a poor. I just would have stuck with the he hadn't played for a long time. 
and yeah, left and it, it wasn't about that. the other stuff. And yep. he went through a lot of stuff. You could say it's self-created, which it was, but he went through a lot of emotional turmoil and everything else. And it was just a hard year. Well, the, as we know, Terry, the excuses list is getting down to zero pretty much mm-hmm. heading into this season. Yep. So it's it's go time. So would you would you draft a running back? Yeah. Me too. Would yeah. you draft you a never quarterback? Too many. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, Mr. I don't Mr. know. Mr. Irrelevant last year ended up starting for the 49ers and might be their starter going into this season ahead of the guy they they fell all over themselves to get a couple of years ago, yeah. Trey Lance. So you never yeah. know. You, you don't know. And, and, and also, in general, if a guy plays a couple of years in the league, he just sticks around and he has value. So, um, yeah, I will look at those positions and, and, and see if there's something you could want. A lot of well-round running backs, you get a couple of years out of them. Um, so we well, will we've see. we talked about this. I think Bubba Ventrone is going to get to handpick some special teams guys out of Good. this group that they'll draft, which they can use too. So, all right, Terry, we've got to move along. I got to, uh, I'm, I'm not doing a good job keeping this on schedule today. All right. <laughs> but we're doing all right. We got time for one Hey Terry question. And before I forget, if you get a chance, send us your thoughts, send us your comments, questions, anything you want to get on the podcast, we, we would love to get it on. Just send us an email to sports at cleveland.com. And just put Terry's talking in the subject line. Again, it's real simple, sports at cleveland.com. So let's go to Chester, Virginia for this week's question from Jefferson Wolf. Thanks for sending this in, Jefferson. He says, hey, Terry and Dave, since I just heard you give the address on this week's podcast, I thought I'd send this one in. Lots of talk this year about Terry Francona and what a great job he's done in Cleveland. I was curious about comparing and contrasting the styles and personalities of Tito and Mike Hargrove the other very successful Cleveland manager during my lifetime. I wondered if maybe Terry had some unique insight from his years of covering both managers. So Tito and Mike Hargrove, differences, similarities. What do you think, Terry? Hargrove had a star-studded cast of very volatile personalities. So a lot of his, he's, by the way, since we're on animals, his thing was having this job is like being a duck. <laughs> so we're now on the ducks. He said, you watch a duck, he's swimming, and it seems to be peaceful and the water's flaccid. But under the water, his feet are paddling like crazy. And that's what it's like. It's like you want to, as a manager, keep everything peaceful on top so that people don't know how hard all the junk is going on under the surface, you know, which would have been – you know, Albert Bell and Manny and all those guys. And he did a pretty good job with that. Um, But Francona is the package. Francona's ability to relate to different types of personalities, it it just goes across lines. I never thought I would see a better manager than Earl Weaver, who I broke in covering in 79. Um, But... I mean, Francona can talk analytics with these guys. He can do the old old school baseball. He has such a, a heart for people that's genuine. But he's also in the right front office where they respect the kind of players he wants. And he doesn't have all the volatile personalities. John Hart was like, let's get these talented guys. Let's bring them in here. My goodness, John Hart traded for John Rocker for no reason other than he was available. Uh, so... Hart's thing was, I'll get them, you coach them, you know. And that made it difficult for Mike 
at times. But the good thing is Mike sometimes was able to talk hard off of a few of things off the ledge of wanting to like trade for guys or that kind of stuff. It, it was almost a reversal of what you see psychology um, where oftentimes it's the front office that wants to keep the coach or manager from wanting to get rid of four guys one day. Whereas with Hart and Hargrove, it was Hargrove who was often telling John to cool it. Let's see how this goes. Uh, and by the way, Hart was a good evaluator at talent. Hart put together a really good team here. This is not a knock on John. Just saying how the personalities are different. Uh, where it seems like the Guardians, everything is so behind closed doors, you really don't know who's the guy that wants to trade four people and who's the calm one because they all just come out. And they've been doing this for a decade. Um, and they just, when they disagree, they just leave it. They really do leave it behind closed doors. And I just... Um, I think that's that's one of the differences. Tito could do Tito could do more with less than any manager I've ever seen. And that's not a knock on Hargrove. It just it just is. Yeah, it was a different time. And the thing that's amazing about Tito also is the years have gone on. He's getting older, his health is but he still relates to a 21-year-old yeah. and a 40-year-old, you know, like Mike Napoli or some kid coming from the minors like he's able to connect with every age group of player. Mm-hmm. in a meaningful way. And I think that's what you said about Terry about his connecting on a human level. And yeah. it's it's hard to do well, and he does it well. Yeah, and then just his ability to, uh, um, I mean, they're going to have a good bullpen again. He always has a good bullpen. And now some of the credit goes to the organization too, but um, you can mishandle a bullpen really easily, and he doesn't do it. So um, he's just unique. All right. Well, I think about time to wrap up here. Is there anything you want to share with listeners about what you've been reading or doing? Or any, no, I think no? that'll do it. We, we're way <laughs> we over our word up. limit. We're way over. So the internet will hold it, though. I, I'm pretty confident yeah. in that. So, all right. Hit us with um, questions, comments at sports at cleveland.com. And also just to give another plug to the newsletter, Terry's new newsletter comes out every Monday. Go to cleveland.com slash newsletters. It is free and you can sign up. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of the Cavs series against the Knicks. We'll talk to you next week on Terry's Talking.